Welcome to Education, Technology, Society, a podcast about education in the digital age. Welcome to Education, Technology, Society, a podcast about education in the digital age. Hello and welcome to Education, Technology, Society. This is a podcast about education, technology, digital education from a slightly more critical perspective. My name's Neil Selwyn from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, and today we're talking about the history of education computing. In particular, I've caught up with Michael Geis from Zurich University of Teacher Education, and he's one of the editors of a new collection called How Computers Entered Classrooms, 1960 to 2000 Historical Perspectives. And this book contains a bunch of country-specific chapters overviewing how computers came into Hungarian, French, Latvian, Swedish, Swiss and West German schools, and also some chapters on the edtech agendas from the 1970s onwards of international organisations such as UNESCO, OECD and the European Union. This is really insightful stuff, and I think the history of edtech is a key part of the critical studies of education technology. There's lots of young scholars now writing around this topic in North America and across Europe, so it's definitely an area of critical edtech scholarship that's on the rise. So I use the book basically as an excuse to catch up with Michael and learn a bit more about what this field is currently focused on. I hope you enjoy. This book happened because of a, of a larger research project that we ran. So I co-edited the book with Carmen Fleury. She, she was uh, one of my, my PhD students that now defended her thesis. And what we were interested in was all the computer education initiatives by or for public education. So if you go to the state archives, there, the, this is really very well documented. You have a lot of monitoring also, for example, even in Switzerland, where it's really, really decentralized. So each of the 26 cantons has its own school law, its own authorities, and so on. Even there, if you really, really go into the archives of each of the cantons, it's really a lot of printed materials a lot of publications, but also archival sources and so on. And, and one of the things that struck me was you actually start the book by identifying what you see as common tropes in the history of education technology. And you do kind of make this distinction between you know the, the tech corporations and the government ministers coordinating things, the powerful elites coordinating this. And on the other side, this idea of just you know the bottom-up grassroots efforts of hobbyists and enthusiasts and people that were just tinkering. And I'm just interesting because clearly both sides of that story are of relevance. I mean, what does the book and what do the chapters in your book tell us about the relationship and the correspondence between you know, the, the top-down elite and the bottom-up grassroots? I'm not sure if you can say this so much in general, but what you can see, for example, in, in Larry Cuban's book, uh, Oversold and Underused, is how um, those enthusiasts in the um, state authorities, parent associations, teacher associations, uh, some other teacher, more, more loose teacher networks and so on, they, they prepare without really knowing it, the markets for the others. So what, what, what they do is, is, is making markets. They convince the public that computing education is important. They help to develop a common understanding how this could be something relevant for teacher education, for schools, for teacher training, and so on. They help to standardize, also, I would say, um, the market, which is quite important for, for companies, that they not have to sell to Switzerland 26 different products, but one. 
and on a European level, like maybe even just one project for all of them. So I would say that those early enthusiasts are always like pioneers and, and also often quite progressive if you take the gender side and the whole side of racial discrimination and so on aside. But they have like a, an idea of like the citizen of a skilled person being critical also in terms of computer use and so on. <laughs> and what they do by that is opening doors. Mm. You can see this, for example, uh, like I would say in the final phase in Germany now, where they even changed the constitution that the, the central government can put money directly into the single states of the Federal Republic. It's usually not allowed to because this is an, a matter and responsibility of the single states uh, for a computer infrastructure. So what they help now is making a market for those uh, co companies that would like to provide schools with their infrastructures. Absolutely. And I think there is also a history of the, the, the corporations directly enrolling some of these teachers. I mean, the Apple Distinguished course, Educator yeah. Program, you know, they're acting almost as ambassadors and evangelists for, for these tech companies. Yeah, if you go to, to Switzerland again, uh, you can see that Microsoft in the 1990s built strong relationships uh, with the state authorities. They had um, so-called back then framework agreements because um, the software providers in the 1990s were like selling uh, educational licenses for their software at the highest price always that they could get. So one school in the Western part paid much more than one in the Eastern part. One Canton had a, an agreement with a software provider like Microsoft yeah, that was way, way uh, more expensive than the other one. So then the uh, uh, intercantonal body stopped, uh, stepped in and negotiated so-called framework agreements. So what does it mean if you want to sell software in, in our country? And uh, those, those archival holdings e exist. So you can see those negotiations. You can see how, how easy it was to get a framework with another software provider and how difficult it was with Microsoft. Those framework agreements still exist today. <laughs> they mean that, that Google and other countries um, accepted that Swiss laws are responsible, that Swiss rules apply, and this, that, that cases will be uh, handled before Swiss courts. But, but this is like a, a story of 30 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and to understand why Microsoft was often much better in getting their infrastructure into schools has a lot to do with uh, trust, established relationships. They understand the cantonal authorities. They understand the teacher association. Everyone knows their people. And, and this story is also still to be told. But, but Apple did the same in the United States. They approached politicians and administrators quite early and, and, and built those relationships. Yes. It, is, it is a fascinating and a really complex history. And, I, and one of the great things about the book is you've got country-specific chapters. So you've got France and Switzerland and West Germany and Sweden and Soviet Latvia. And there's some very, very interesting nuances and differences. But I'm also interested in the commonalities. And I know historians don't like to generalize, but <laughs> reading through the chapters myself, I, I think I can see some general characteristics in terms of how education computing kind of evolved across Europe. Would you be tempted to kind of draw some broad conclusions in terms of different phases or waves of, of how computers got into classrooms? Yeah, I, I think we talked a lot already about this really pioneering phase where you could not really make a lot of money with uh, computers in schools in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I would say with a microcomputer, 
it was really devices became so much cheaper and so much more handy <laughs> which funny compared to today's smartphones and so on but but it was really uh, this was was uh, people became really enthusiastic about it people bought their own own computers for their households mm. so but so you have this i would say wave in the 1980s where like all the, the the smallest countries really got excited about it and thought okay we need to do something and of course they they did so because of the not not because they wanted to make education better or more efficient. It, it's I think it's not so much the story of um, personalized learning. It's more about okay, the computer is an economic asset, and we need to prepare our societies for that. It, it was not very good to use for educational purposes back then. There was not good software available. It was again command lines, computer graphics was not very good, and so on. But but. Governments felt okay. We, if we want to stay competitive, we really have to invest here. So, 1980s, I would say this is really a wave. And and what is also history is sometimes sometimes fascinating in in terms of what how how fast people forget because in the 1980s, all the all the different stakeholders already developed kind of I would say historical understanding of themselves. You can see that they published about their own history. So they said, okay, in the 1970s, those were the pioneers, and now it's established. So, and then in the 1990s, the internet came and blew this whole history away. People started like from the scratch. Yeah. For the first time, you could really do something that was easy. So, so then you had all those net days and bringing computers to the internet, wire initiatives. And people were not talking about those efforts in the early 1980s. Yeah. So, so at, at least in the time frame that we cover in the book, and there I would say you could, yeah, you could could find, and also across countries, those three phases I would say of computer education. But some, I mean, there's so much in the book that actually points to differences, and I'm not sure whether you'd attribute them to kind of national differences. I mean, there's all sorts. Of, one of the things that really struck me was the French chapter, the French case. And here we were looking at budgetary documents, I think, and the financial following the money. Yeah. And this whole idea of the socialist Mitterrand government trying to siphon large amounts of public money when they were meant to be austere times to ostensibly kind of just bankroll French IT firms, where other countries were very, very careful about not being... So, I mean, that was fascinating. The financial stuff was, was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Finance is very well documented, but not so much studied. Clémence Caroquin, that wrote this France chapter, she's really a specialist in finance history. It's, it's quite an interesting story, but it, this is hard work. It's not, not only because of number crunching, but also... There, some the decisions are not very well documented. Often, all the stuff is thrown away afterwards for some reason. It's it's interesting, yes. But but what you can see, finance funding is really important. Uh, Victoria Kane in her book um, Schools and Screens, um, she she also asks for money as something that we should look more on private foundations, especially in her case. But the France is always like it's the centralist state. So and if you compare it with Switzerland, twenty six cantons. What I would say, Western Germany, there you have this more decentralized countries. Sweden, again, is more centralized, social democratic. Um, Carmen Fleury, that co-edited this book with me, um, she, she wrote on socialist GDR, also a small country. So you, what, what we found in our project, uh, comparing those initiatives in the country, was how important our political structure is. 
so this is something I would ask for to to look more than usually Otto would say a critical um, attack research and so on. They they always look at the all the global developments and this is important. And they also always look at oh what do the companies do, and then they look for those cases where you can see okay here the companies have quite an easy job to get into schools because they're supported by governments or private associations, foundations, and so on. This is really important. But if you really look at initiatives and what happens with them and how exactly uh, computers have been introduced into classrooms, you can see how important the political structure, the political culture of a country is. And then you find similarities like uh, Carmen and, and together with our postdoc Rosalia Guerrero did in a, in a really nice article. They, they compared um, the initiatives for education computers. So to develop like the BBC Micro, to develop something like this in the in Sweden, there you have mm. the the, comp the compies, and the same happened in the GDR, the Bildungscomputer, and so they compared those two countries and uh, tried to explain, yeah, why did this happen there, and it ha didn't happen in Western Germany, which is quite interesting. So, so you you can can see how important I would say um, the political structure, also also the differences in the in the single states are also who is in charge in the state authorities and so on. This is, is but that is also I'm a little biased here because I'm always interested in, in politics. So um I'm interested in those in, in, in interest coalitions, also in interest coordination within countries and the political economy, how different powerful actors, corporate actors negotiate and so on. So yeah, but I would say this is a take-home message. Take care for the political contexts in which this happens. Absolutely. And, and, and the chapters on Soviet-era Latvia and Hungary as well, the centralised Eastern Bloc states and how they got computers into classrooms, I thought was, was fascinating. One of the, the, the final three chapters I thought were really interesting because they do offer a bit more continuity between the 2020s and the 1970s. And these are the ones looking at the education technology agendas of international organizations. I mean, UNESCO, OECD, the European Union are still really important players in the ed tech market in the 2020s. Some of your chapters really tell a fascinating story of what they were doing in the 70s and 80s. I mean, what, what, what does the history of someone like UNESCO or OECD tell us about what they're currently doing? It's interesting that international organizations, are they, they are quite, I would say, well covered in the history of education at the moment, as they are in critical research on, on attack and platforms and so on. And I, I, I always struggle a little bit with how important are they or for what are they important? Because like the OECD, it, it cannot enforce anything. The European Union cannot do so. UNESCO cannot do so. So what, what they do, they are role models, of course. And this is also how they understand themselves. Um, they, they provide a language. They provide a platform. Barbara Hof called it an arena for, for debating. They are always early, but this is also their job. OECD, for example, they, they are always try to re be the tone setter and so on. But I, I think it's important not to to overestimate. I think uh, you, then then you then you lose exactly what happens in, in in the classroom, in the state authorities, how decisions are made. If you look, for example, in the eighties, with a more broader view, what what has been purchased, and from whom. Then you see, for example, that local providers are really important. Mm. If you look at computer industry. It's, it's really many, not even national, but regional computer firms that put together some components and offer it. 
uh, you will not see that if you only look at OECD, UNESCO, and so on. But I think that they are important to, to set the tone, to provide language, to push, to make something look urgent. But we need to be careful not to just believe what they try to tell us and also how they, they present themselves. Now, that's a really important lesson to learn when we're looking at what's going on now. I mean, I think it's Lee Vincell who talks about critty hype and the problems of critical researchers taking the hype from the tech industry at face value and then engaging yeah. with the hype and actually perpetuating, as you say, stories that aren't even born in reality when we look at classrooms. I'm interested, this is your area, this is your whole career, what new histories of education technology and education computing remain to be told? You've This book quite comprehensively covers computers into classrooms, but what are you beginning to think about? What's What else is interesting? What else is important? Of course, we wrote about Europe. So I, I would say the United States is quite well covered now. Mm. Southern Europe is not well covered, but what, be, what would be interesting is the global south again, mm. of course. Or Latin America as well. Latin America is interesting. Sub-Sahara Africa is incredibly interesting. Asia, India, I think this is really important. I would say the whole company side still has to be really studied. I, I want to, one day I would want to get into those archives. So I I managed to get into the archives of the Swiss Main Employers Association, but for another project. So it's possible to convince people and also be, still be independent. But but I would uh, maybe if I if I once get a grant to to fly to the United States, I, I will look into the holdings of the Digital Equipment Corporation because this seems to be publicly available. I hope that someone does it because I think I think this is really a great case. We don't know this corporation anymore, but it was one um, of the main competitors of IBM before the microcomputer, and they were also important for um, the early computer education experiments because their devices were a little bit cheaper than the old mainframes. And, and they um, also distributed basic programming language that many people used and that was for educational purposes back then. Uh, so, and then, of course, the, the whole, like the internet um, story is not really well told, told mm. because, it, of course, it started in the 1990s, but it, it becomes really interesting in the 2000s. Uh, I would be also interested in doing this this kind of of internet history approach. At the moment, I try to to write some some Python scripts to to scrape uh, through Wayback Machine and do some some pre analysis and so on. I think this kind of research still needs to be done. Yeah. No, I mean, there's there's a whole lifetime to be doing this stuff, and it's great that you're not the only person doing that. This field is is kind of growing, and I'm impressed by the number of different young scholars that are involved in the book as well. And just as my final question, you've been tossing some names into the conversation. So people that have been listening will have picked up on people like Larry Cuban and Katie Day Good. Not that I'm asking you to pick a top five, but are there any particular names or a reading list that you'd recommend listeners to kind of to, to dig out? Who should we be looking to beyond your book? I really like Victoria Kane's book. I just reviewed it. She's focusing on private foundations. Um I mentioned Mar Hicks' book, Programmed Inequality. This this was really an important starting point back then um, when I wrote this application for the project uh, from which the book emerged. Yeah, Audrey Watchers is just a fun, also fun to read. Teaching machines. I I like. Uh, yeah, they, she gets quite close to the whole IBM story because it seems to be really well covered in the writings of of Skinner. Barbara Hof is always a great read. 
yeah, she, she's really, it's not only that she's doing a lot of research on international organizations, but also um, the whole story of scientific research and computer education, computer use. Um, Katie Day Good is, is good uh, to learn that it's not only computers, but that the story started earlier and that there were like often very progressive visions attached to, to those um, ambitions. Yeah. And then finally, of course, the people from my team. It's um, Carmen Flory, her book on socialist GDR. Hope it will come out this year. And then the, there's a great article, uh, more than one, by Fabian Grütter. Who, who looked at education computer in the in Western Switzerland. And this was a grassroots endeavor, quite interesting. And they were able to compete with Apple for around about 10 years uh, with school computers. So there was those fights between Apple enthusiasts and those smucky, it was called, this this um, education computer. And, and Fabian Grutter, he's really a great historian. And examples like that, I think really typify why the history of education technology should be a really important part of critical studies of education technology because they they show us how other education technologies are possible or might have been possible and can kind of also give a sense of hope um, and and a really good case study. So, I mean, it's it's a really fascinating area. I, I'm really interested in the history of education technology, but I can never, everything I ever write on the topic never gets cited or picked up. So it's more <laughs> of a side hobby, but I really admire you guys for, for pushing with it. So, I mean, the book's great. I urge everybody to read it. Thanks ever so much for taking it. It's been a fascinating conversation, Michael, and good luck with the, the next histories that you write. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.